Tonight's lecture is entitled, The Jews of Poland. So, as mentioned two lectures ago, and several weeks ago, uh, when discussing the aftermath of the Spanish Inquisition, after the 16th century, the main stage of world Jewish drama and historical activity shifted from Spain to the Ashkenazi heartland of Eastern Europe. There will, there will still be many areas of Jewish settlements and activity, but Eastern Europe became the center of Jewry, its Torah scholarship, and its cultural development. It would host the genesis of the modern era's ferment of divisiveness, creativity, and the glory of Jewry, and the particular home of this vital, surging, and oftentimes contentious Ashkenazi Jewish society was Poland. Look at source number one. This is from a barrel wine, Herald of Destiny, the quintessential shtetl Jew, the long-suffering of a proud and noble ghetto dweller, the scholarly, impoverished, pious, and spiritual person, was developed and nurtured in Poland. The genius of Polish Jewry, its quick mind and wry humor, its quasi-holy Yiddish language, it etched into the soul of Israel and reflected itself in the methods of Torah study and rhythm of everyday life. It was in Poland that the inner beauty of Ashkenazi Jewry was revealed, and there its true essence of renewal, curiosity, naivety, idealism became externalized. Nowhere else did the Jew in exile become as openly Jewish and rise so high above the surrounding non-Jewish milieu, ignoring its ways and belief as he did in Poland. In Poland, the Jew developed the positive passiveness that gave him patience, serenity, and a gentle, non-violent view towards life and its problems. The Polish Jew eventually became the prototype for his brethren in Lithuania and Russia as well, even though there would naturally be nuances of dissimilarity between the Jews in the, diff in the, in the different countries of exile. The history of the Jews in Poland dates back over a millennium. For centuries, Poland was home to the largest and most significant Jewish community in the world, by numbers, by scholarship as well. In fact, about three-quarters of all Ashkenazic Jewry lived in Poland by the middle 16th century, the 16th century. Now, Poland, as we'll discuss, at that time was not just Poland, it was Poland, Lithuania, and at certain points, including parts of Ukraine, and Bielorussia, White Russia, as well. From the founding of the Kingdom of Poland in 1025, through to the early years of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in 15, which was created in 1569, Poland was one of the most tolerant countries in Europe, known as Paradisus Judarium, Latin for Jewish Paradise. It became a unique shelter for persecuted and expelled European Jewish communities, as we discussed in previous lectures during the Crusades, 
during the Black Plague, Western Germany, France and Germany, Western Europe, excuse me, France and Germany in particular were extremely hostile to the Jews. Eventually Spain, as we discussed a couple lectures ago, would utterly annihilate its Sephardic community. Consequently, Poland became home to the world's largest Jewish community. The very name Poland became a play on Hebrew words illustrating it became a haven for Jews and Judaism. The word Poland in Hebrew, there's two words they use. There's Polin and Polanya. And the Jews would say Polanya. What is Polanya? Po, here, Lan, dwells, Ka, God. Po, Lan, Ka, here dwells God. And the other thing they used to say about Poland is that Polin, Po, here, a Jew could rest. The message was that Poland was meant to be a good place for Jews. And we will discuss the golden age of Poland Jewry, the, the, the glory of Polish Jewry today. But like all, and we discussed, we discussed Spain, things changed in the exile. And what, what at one point was a glorious home, not only in scholarship, but in, in, in wealth, and success for the Jews would eventually become very bitter. We, very often, we think of Poland, we think of the Germans and the Holocaust, and they're aiding and abetting the Germans. Certainly the Ukrainians were, were, were violent anti-Semites. Um, when we think of Jid and being cursed on the street, there was a point in Polish Jewry and Polish history where things were very different. How did the Jews come to Poland? Well, in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to develop your country economically and socially, who did you need? You needed the Jews. The Jews were given a remarkably warm welcome to Poland starting in the 11th century. Why were the Jews so necessary for economic growth? Okay, it's unbelievable. I mean, just look at the IMF. I don't want to get... I'll I'll save it for a drasha one day. But... They, they, they knocked out this French Jew. The next day they put up another Jew. John Lewis, you know, back to back. It's like, you look at the, the Federal Reserve. I mean, Jews are always prominent um, bankers, accountants, and administrators who knew how to keep an economy healthy. Same thing back then. The Jews were known as economic geniuses. If your country wanted to get built up, they invited the Jews. Moreover, the Jews could read and write. As discussed in a previous lecture, Judaism always espoused education. Every Jewish child needed to know how to read and write because Torah study was a prime commandment of the uh, the Torah. A Jew needed to know how to bench. A Jew needed how to read Torah. Boys and girls were literate. So when you had Europe being less than 1% literate, only the clergy for, for, for most parts of Europe, the Jews had almost 100% literacy. It was a different world. Jews were literate. So you wanted people like that in your country. The first Jews arrived in the territory of modern Poland in the 10th century by traveling along the trade routes to Kiev and Bukharia. Uh, Jewish merchants known as Radonites, which we've discussed previously, crossed the areas of Silesia, which is on the border of Germany and Poland. One of them, a diplomat and merchant, from the Moorish town of Tortosa, known under his Arabic name as Ibrahim ibn Jacob, Abraham ben Jacob, was the first chronicler 
to mention the Polish state under the rule of Prince Mexico. So he was actually the first mention of this Polish state in, this, in the secular press was a Jewish chronicler. Um, it, it already by the middle of the 11th century there's, there are um, proof of Jews living in Gineznio, which was the, the, then the capital of Poland. And the first permanent Jewish community was in 1085 and that's marked by a Judah Jew- Cohen marking the city of Presmil. However, large-scale emigration happened in the beginning of the 12th century. And that was as a result of the First Crusade, which happened 1096 to 1098. So under Boleslaw III, the Jews were encouraged by the Tsar regime of this ruler and settled throughout Poland, including over the border into the Lithuanian territory and as far as Kiev. Boleslaw III, for his part, recognized the utility of the Jews in the development of the commercial interests of his country. Under Mexico, the old, which was, he lived, ruled from 1173 to 1202, um, in his endeavor to establish law and order in his domains, he prohibited all acts of violence against the Jews, particularly account, attacks upon them by unruly students. Boys guilty of such attacks or their parents were made to pay fines as heavy as those imposed for sacrilegious acts, which was extremely uncommon. Right? You have to remember, most of the legislation that was occurring in the, the Catholic countries were anti-Semitic in nature. It was not protective of Jews. And in the 13th century, the Jews became the, the backbone of the Polish economy. There were coins unearthed in 1872 in the Polish village of Glenbrook. These Pol- coins were from the, t- the mid-12th to early 13th century. And they were written in Hebrew, okay, illustrating that the Jews were very comfortable in Poland. And there were all kinds of Meshek the Blessed or Meshek the Just, referring to the Polish leader. There were things of rejoice, rejoice, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Avram Yitzhak, Yaakov, rejoice. It's good times. Poland was good. There were Jewish names. Apparently, there were minters like Abraham Dukes and Abraham Petch. Jews enjoyed undisturbed peace and prosperity and they were instrumental in promoting the commercial interests of the land. Concomitantly, concurrently with the Jewish economic success, the Catholic Church would start to rail against the Jews. In the 13th century, in the late 13th century, the Church tried to spread their teachings and to solidify their hold on Poland. And under the Catholic Church, many of these ideas um, are going to spread around. And of course, ideas um, spread. Now we have Mrs. Galant's brother coming to Shabbos, who's one of the education heads of the ADL. They can tell you, if people are giving out propaganda, well, right now it may be a joke. But if you propagandize enough, I mean, look at the Arab world of the past 50 years, how radical it's become. You read the history of Nazi Germany. The average citizen in 1922 was not violently anti-Semitic. But the average citizen in 1942, <laughs> after years of Goebbels and Streicher, was very anti-Semitic in Germany. So the church over the years is going to affect the mindset of Poland. The other thing that happened was that Boleslaw V, who, who ruled from 1228 to 1279, encouraged the, the influx of German colonists. Okay, he granted them rights 
and they established towns in Poland. Well, German um, citizens had a, a long history of animus towards Jews. So you brought in a whole population with preconceived anti-Semitic beliefs coming into Poland. Nevertheless, still in the 13th century, the majority of rulers um, were quote-unquote pro-Jewish philo-Semitic. In fact, one of them was Boleslaw Pabozny, called the Pilots of Kalish, who was a prince of Great Poland. And with the consent of the higher officials of Poland, in 1264, issued a general charter of Jewish liberties, called the Statue of Kalish, which clearly defined the position of his Jewish subjects. This charter dealt with all uh, sides of Jewish life, particularly relations, relations between Jews and Christian neighbors, and the guiding principle was justice. It had no national, racial, or, or religious mo- motives. Okay, this charter, it was an amazing document of its time. It was unprecedented in rights and privileges. Okay, let's look at source number two. The testimony of the Christian alone may not be admitted in any matter which concerns the money or property of a Jew. In every such incident, there must be the testimony of both a Christian and a Jew. If a Christian injures a Jew, in any which way the accused shall pay a fine to the royal treasury. Now, even in Spain, which, which was still, you know, in the golden age of Spain, a Jew couldn't t- testify against a Muslim. Certainly in Christian countries, <laughs> if you were, you were accused, you didn't have due process in court. Number two, if a Christian desecrates or defiles a Jewish cemetery, in any which way it is our wish that he be punished severely as demanded by law. If a Christian should attack a Jew, the Christian shall be punished as required by the law of this land. We absolutely forbid anyone to accuse a Jews in our domain of using the blood of human beings. Remember the blood libel? Absolutely forbidden in Poland. We affirm that if any Jew cries out in the night as a result of violence done to him, and if his Christian neighbors fail to respond to his cries, which is remarkable, if there's no good Samaritanism, and do not bring the necessary help, they shall be fined. We also affirm that Jews are free to buy and sell all manner of things just as Christians, and if anyone hampers them, he shall pay a fine. This is an extraordinary document, particularly for its time. We've discussed previously, even when Jews were led into certain professions, usually they were blocked by the burghers and by the Christian nobility for many of the professions. Let's say when a bishop or the nobility wanted to get rid of the Jews because they owed them money, they would start a blood libel. Part and parcel of the, the Middle Ages experience was Jews would be forced to money lend, money lend. They would be put into a situation where they would be owed money, and the way you, 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 you know, could you imagine today, 14 trillion dollars of debt, and they want to raise it, that's the link. You know, very easy, if you get, if you get rid of the Jews, you get rid of 12 billion, trillion dollars of debt. <laughs> well, you know, you can only imagine it would be a, how bipartisan that would be in certain countries, right? You, all of a sudden you wipe out your debt? That's a, wiping out that's a great thing. Well, if the Jews control a lot of the debt and the Jews weren't so popular in many of these countries we discussed, they just wiped out the debt very easily. They got rid of the Jews. In Poland, you have the complete opposite. But as mentioned, at the same time, concurrently, with the laity, with the nobility welcoming the Jews who were building up Poland, the clergy was railing against them. Therefore, in 1266, 
an economical council was held at work law under the chairmanship of the papal nuncio Guido. Now that means that the Pope's official designate designate in Poland. This council introduced numerous anti-Jewish clauses. For example, they had to couldn't own real estate in any Christian quarter. I kind of like the Jews can't do in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem today. Um, they were not to appear on the streets during Christian processions. They were allowed to only have a single synagogue in any one town, and they were, were required to wear a special cap to distinguish them from Christians. The later were forbidden under the penalty, Christians were forbidden under the penalty of, of excommunication to invite Jews to feasts or any other entertainments. The council also confirmed regulations that Jews would now have Christian servants to lease taxes, custom duties, or hold any public office. Moreover, in 1279, the Council of Offenheld prescribed that Jews must wear a red badge. And the four growing provisions passed just uh, 13 years earlier were upheld. Fortunately, the Polish leadership did not enact the vast majority of these edicts. But this is what the church wanted in the 13th century. This was their edicts, which the Polish nobility did not do. And in fact, just the opposite. In 1320, Ladulus Lokitek ascended the, the Polish throne and endeavored to establish a uniform legal code throughout the land. With the general laws, he assured the Jews' safety and freedom and placed them on equality with the Christians. They dressed like Christians, wearing garments similar to them. The Jews did not have to dress distinctly. In 1334, Casimir III, the Great, in amplified and expanded the original Jewish rights. Okay, he was especially friendly to the Jews, and his reign between 1303 and 1370 of 67 years was a time of great prosperity for the Jews. He um, would view the Jews as an essential part of Poland, and he's actually quite kind to the serfs as well, and because of that, they nicknamed him King of the Serfs and King of the Jews. Nevertheless, even in Kazmir, even in, the, when he, in, a, in a great period of time, it was the time of the bubonic plagues, time of the black plagues, and on western Poland, on the towns bordering on Germany, during the black plague riots, which we discussed in detail, in a previous lecture, 10,000 Jews were murdered on that border. Now that was a small amount compared to the tens of thousands that were killed in Germany, France, and Spain but it still showed that it was, life was not a 100% stable for Jews in Poland. The next uh, 100 or so years were not as positive for the Jews. Um, under Khazar's successor, Louis I of Hungary, who ruled from 1370 to 1384, as a general law and order was left the land. And when there was less law and order in the land, the Jews needed to be protected. and needed some form of protection because many of the common people, you know, the church railing against them, they were more vulnerable. Under um, his successor, however, who is the Lithuanian Grand Duke and King of Poland, Wallace II, who ruled from 1386 to 1434, and who married Louis I of Hungary's daughter and merged Poland and Lithuania, which had happened many times in history. Poland and Lithuania would very often be one country. If you look at it at a map, it would depend which, not even which century, which decade of which century you're going to look at. And sometimes it's which half a decade, whether Lithuania would be an independent country 
or would it be part of Poland or part of Russia at, at certain points? It was constantly um, up for grabs. So at that point of time, there were more, much more um, persecution of Jews. It was a time of more uncertainty, so much so that in 1399, in the city of Posen, which was historically always a very Jewish city, Posen, in Posen, Rekiva Eger, for example, which is the greatest sage of the early 19th century, was the rabbi of Posen. There was an actual blood libel. A Christian lady accused the elders of the town of telling her to take out the hosts of from the church, and that, they, that, and that when they stabbed these hosts, and they started to bleed, and they got nervous, and they buried them, and all kinds of miracles happened. The bishop bought into this blood libel, which we discussed, against the host, and ultimately tortured and murdered thir- the 13 Jewish leaders of Posen. The Posen Jewish community afterwards had to pay a fine every year till the 19th century to Dominican friars in Posen. So that you can see, even in the best of times, um, it was still um, uncertain, certainly in the 15th century, which was less stable. In Krakow, in 1407, there's a priest called Budik um, who came against the Jews, and also there's a riot and Jews were killed. The influential Polish Archbishop Nicholas Tronbaugh uh, who is in the Council of Kalish in 1420, um, also pushed for anti-Jewish le- legislation, so much so that in 1423 the king issued a uh, edict forbidding the Jews to lend money and re- re- revoking many of the old charters of the Jews. Okay? Now when you read, and I was just reviewing Polish history, and you look at the Muslim world today, you know, it just shows you the threat, because what's the next thing they do? They start questioning, was the old charter ever even real? You know, you think about, you know, all of the Holocaust denial. We may, we think it's crazy, but you, you repeat lies enough, people start be- believing in it. And so they started saying that the old charter that they got from Boleslaw and Casimir the Great, they were, it was forgeries. <laughs> it can, it, and you know why? Because no good Catholic leader would ever give the Jews such expansive rights. It cannot have been, it could not have been true. Fortunately, Casimir IV in 1447 um, renewed the charter, and in fact, when he told the Jewish Jewish uh, communities of Posen, Kalish, and several other places, which we applied for renewal of the charter, he sent his new grant, we desire the Jews, whom we, we protect, especially for the sake of our own interests, and those of the royal treasure shall feel contented during our prosperous reign. In confirming, they reconfirmed all, all the rights of property, of interaction with non-Jews. But even Casper the Fourth, after losing a battle to the Teutonic Knights, the Teutonic Knights, for those uh, who don't know Crusader history, were a German medieval group of knights who protected the Crusaders. Today they're actually a Catholic order. <laughs> Okay, when they lost a battle to the Teutonic Knights, they actually got the king to revoke the privileges again as contrary to the divine rights and law of the land. Um, from 1492 um, to 1506, he had two leaders, John of Albrecht and Alexander, Alexander, 
neither were especially fa- friendly Alexander in the beginning of his reign, which which was uh, concurrent with the Spanish expulsion, the Alhambra decree, actually expelled the Jews from Lithuania. For, for Lithuania. However, a few years later, he revoked that, and at the end of his at the end of his reign, um, as n- thousands of Jews start pouring into Poland, he had a much more positive um, dealings with them. The end of his reign was 1506. By the beginning of the 16th century, what's called the, the Golden Age of Polish Jewry will begin. Okay, this the next 150 years would be the most prosperous period of life of Polish Jews, and it would begin with the reign of Sigismund the First, who ra- ruled for 42 years, from 1506 to 1548. And in this first year of his reign, the first thing he did uh, told all the Jews of Lvov. Lvov is also known as its German name, Lemberg. We are going to give you more rights. We're going to protect you. In 1503, he appointed a chief rabbi of Krakow, which we'll discuss shortly, certainly, shortly and of Poland. However, it was his son who is called Sigmund II Augustus, who gave the Jews complete rights. In 1551, the Polish Jews were given a chief rabbi, an official chief rabbi, who was given power of all matters of religious life. Jews who basically it was in power legally, Jews who refused to acknowledge his authority were subject to fine or excommunication. Um... And, in theory, they had the power of execution. Now, Jews don't execute. It's, it's for capital punishment has been forbidden in Judaism since the Sanhedrin uh, stopped adjudicating capital punishment cases in the year 30 of the Common Era. So we have not um, had a commun- Even if they gave us the right of capital punishment, it's forbidden for a Jewish court to do ca- capital punishment. Um, the chief rabbi actually had powers and very often was exempt from even Polish law he had powers to appoint over law and finance, to appointing judges and other officials. Okay, um, as far as the tax money, only thirty percent of the tax money that the chief rabbi collected was put into the Jewish community. Seventy percent was raised uh, for the crown for protection <laughs> of the Jewish community. Okay, however, um, it, all, all in all, it was very good. In fact, in the middle of the 16th century, a most remarkable thing happened. King Sigismund II gave the Jews something called the Vod, the Council, the Council of the Four Lands, gave the Jews complete autonomy on religious issues, Okay, which we'll discuss sh- shortly. This favorable attitude of the king irked the Catholic clergy to no end. And you have to remember, in the middle of the 16th century, as we discussed the last lecture, what's happening? It's the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. And the Church is going after all heretics. And the heretics were Calvinists, Lutherans, and Jews. And here you have this king giving the Jews complete rights. And so the, the Catholic appointee kept trying to do blood libels in Poland to rouse up the crowd against the Jews. You know what Sigmund's reaction is? He says, hasn't the Pope himself said that blood libels are false? And he said, from now on, anyone who starts a blood libel has to be dealt with in my courts. And he took it out of the Catholic clergy courts. And in 1567, he gave permission for a yeshiva to be built in Lublin. And this is what he says. As the result of the efforts 
of our advising in keeping with the request of the Jews of Lublin, we do hereby grant permission to erect the yeshiva and to outfit the said yeshiva with all that is required to advance learning. All the learned men and rabbis of Lublin shall come together for amongst the number they should choose one to serve as the head of the yeshiva. Let their choice be a man who will magnify Torah and bring its glory. Can you imagine? This is in the middle of the 16th century. He's talking about bring glory to Torah in the middle of Lublin in Poland. And not only that, during his reign, Poland would actually become unified with Lithuania again and take over all of Ukraine and parts of Belarus. So this Polish empire, which is very, very favorable to the Jews, now becomes a huge empire as well. And it's during this time that some of the most remarkable personalities, which any student of Jewish history has to know, because if you open a Talmud today, and you look at all the later commentaries, almost all of the classic later commentaries are Polish and Lithuanian Jews. If you open a Shulchan Aruch, and you look at the right, and you look at the left, and you look below, almost all of the commentaries are Polish Jews. So this country, Poland, which before the 15th century was not looked at as a Torah center. The Torah centers were for Ashkenazi Jewry, France and Germany. For Sephardic Jewry, most of the Torah centers were in Spain. Later, it would go a little bit to Israel. You find no literature from Iraq, Iran, after the 11th century. Very little out there. Very little in North Africa until the 16th century because the major yeshivas were in Spain and in Israel and um, in Germany, France. All of a sudden, Poland becomes dominant. Almost all of the literature for the next couple hundred years and the vast majority of the well-popular, not talking about small books that no one ever heard of, the classic works that everyone heard of, which everyone studies, both Ashkenazi and Party, are going to come out of Poland. Who was the first of these great people? His name was Rabbi Yaakov Palak or Rabbi Yaakov Polak. <laughs> right? Polak is from Polak. Okay, Rabbi Yaakov Polak w- w- was born in 1450, and he died, uh, in 1455, excuse me, and died 75 years later in Lublin. He was one of the outstanding Torah scholars of his time. He went at first to study in Nuremberg, Germany, because Poland at the time did not have any great yeshivas, um, where the method of study was something called pilpul, Right, which is pilpul literally means complicated discussion. Okay, Rabbi Yaakov Polak would take pilpul and make it the predominant study of Poland. What was pilpul? Pilpul was for. I'm gonna give you an example. Of it. You open a Gemara, you see Rashi and Tosfos, and you ask a question on Rashi. Now the questions are uh, is a, is a, is not necessarily a good question, but you want to bring out a point. And you ask a question, the question, the question, and you start hair splitting. That's how Popo will go, and many of the questions will be false. But when you, it's kind of flushing out the argument. You take, you can start conjecturing, could this argument just do this way, or this way? And Pilpol electrified Polish Jewry. It became, you know, the, when you talk about Talmudic hair splitting, Talmudic hair splitting was not in the time of the early, Rambam wasn't hair splitting. <laughs> Rashi wasn't hair splitting. Now, they hair split, but they didn't hair split like we think. When you talk about Talmudic hair splitting, that's Pilpul. And, and Pilpul became popularized in Poland. Rabbi Yaakov Polak popularized it and it became the mainstay of study there. It had much opposition. 
including many of the greatest sages, opposed it. The Maral of Prague opposed it. Andy's Rebbe, the Maral of Prague student, the Kleoker, opposed it. The Levush, the Murakayafa, opposed it. The Shla, the Shnei Luchot Sabris, opposed it. Uh, the Marsha and others. And the Maral's brother was especially opposed and said that it leads to bringing out all kinds of waste of time. What are you asking questions which are not germane to the halacha? You're asking a question this way, this way. But Rabbi Yaakov Pollock's method of learning became great. And what they felt was if you can think Talmudically, then you'll be able to read all the Gemaras. I mean, if you can think in Pilpul, okay, and today, a version of that is still popular in the Shiva, the Brisker, it's a little bit different, but it's basically to think Talmudically, you look at the world differently. Everything you can divide and conquer, every argument can be looked at 18 different ways. Um, I can tell you that it, for rabbinic students who go in, the, in law school, you're 100 years a year away because they, they attempt to do this on a very rudimentary level in law school. But in yeshiva, you can do this at a very high level. And you can read a sentence and approach it and analyze it in many different ways. And that's what Popol teaches you to do. Interestingly, this revolutionary way of learning, which took over Poland in the mid-16th century, was at the exact same time that learning Kabbalah began to flourish in Svat under the Ramosha Kordavaro, and there is, well, that's going to be next week's lecture, next, two weeks' lecture, next, the next lecture. Right? It happens at the exact same time as Kabbalah becomes popular. Rabbi Yaakov Pollock's first position was in Prague, um, and, but he eventually left Prague because he decided a divorce case, which was very, uh, he was a, a, one opinion against many, and he didn't feel comfortable staying. He moves to Krakow in Poland, and in 1503, uh, he becomes the chief rabbi of Krakow and starts a yeshiva. He be- builds Polish Jewry. But the remarkable thing is at the end of his life, he's forced to run away from Krakow because he got into a clash with one of the heads of the community of Krakow who was the doctor of one of the nobles in Krakow and had to leave for 10 years and go to Israel for 10 years. This is something you'll see in the history of Eastern European history, some of the greatest leaders who we today hear of, the Shagis Aryeh, the Malbim, they were forced out. <laughs> they had to run for their lives because they, they, they butted heads with communal leaders. Right? Now today you don't hear of these communal leaders, but this goes back to Moshe Rabbeinu. You have to imagine, Yaakov Polak, I'm telling you, built Polish Jewry. All the yeshivas are a result of him. He had to leave for 10 years because a doctor, he got into a fight with a doctor. Don't worry. <laughs> right. um, okay. Enough. The interesting, uh, interesting thing enough was that although Rabbi Yaakov Pollock was one of the outstanding Torah leaders of his time, he did not write anything down. Not only him, but his primary disciple, Rabbi Shalom Shachno, also didn't write. And he felt, had he wrote Chedushim, had he wrote Navala, that a response of people would mimic him. He wanted independent thinking, which is another hallmark of Polish Jewry. You gotta be independent. If you ever see the Hasidic movements that spur in the 19th century, which we'll discuss in a few weeks now, they're all so unique. They're, they're, they may dress, you may, you may not see them, you may see them on the street, you say, oh, they all look like, you know, you know, uh, more otherworldly, like the Hasidic look, but the, if you look at their movements, they are so different. The emphasis of all these Hasidic moment, movements 
are very, very different because Polish, they're all, they all primarily started in Poland. Because Polish Jewry emphasized, pick your own path. You don't have to be a monkey see, monkey do person. Okay? It was, it was, there was a focus on that. His primary disciples were Shalom Shachna. All of Shalom Shachna, who lived from 1490 to 1558 on his tombstone, it said he was the greatest disseminator of Polish history. Rav Shalom Shachna, who was the primary disciple of Yaakov Polak, or Yaakov Polak, was the person who built the first yeshivas. He, he built a yeshiva in Lublin. He, as his student, Rav Moshe Isolus, the Ramas stated, was a teacher of all of Pol- Polish leaders. leaders. Okay, um, He also didn't write anything down because he felt that it would be limiting for his students and due to his great modesty. But his students would be vociferous, uh, voracious, excuse me, writers, and they would start all of the literature that we'll see uh, to our day. He was a student, he was a teacher of the Ramah, that's the, uh, of, uh, of, of, and many others. Um, there's actually a story that's brought down in the Sefer, Zuchusa de Avram, that Rabbi Labelo Eger, Rabbi Kiva Eger's grandson, Rabbi Kiva Eger, again, was the greatest 19th, early 19th century rabbi, the rabbi in Posen, his grandson became the rabbi in, uh, to his, actually, Rabbi Egg was always, he was extremely bothered. His grandson became a chassid. <laughs> his grandson became chassidic. Um, he was certainly not chassidic, Rabbi Kiva Eger. Uh, he's what you call the more Lithuanian, he was a, he was a Lithuanian, not a Lithuania. Um, he, his grandson became a chassidic and became the Rav of Lublin. In Lublin, in the, in the middle of the 19th century, there's a huge fire. Now, if you're in a fire in those days, when the, the way the houses were constructed, it could literally burn the whole city down. And they couldn't stop the fire. <coughs> so he said he sent a minion of people to the grave of Shalom Shachna. And as they started davening at the grave, all of a sudden, like, in a miraculous fa- fashion, the fire started to calm down. And they were able to put out the fire. Shalom Shachna's greatest student and son-in-law was the Ramah, was Ramosha Israelis. Uh, Ramosha Israelis grew up in a very wealthy house. His father was one of the leaders, one of the lay leaders um, of Krakow. He sent his son, followed um, by Shalom Shachna, with his relative known as Shlomo Luria, the Marshal. Shlomo Luria's cousin was a different Luria, Yitzhak Luria, the Arizal, who we'll discuss uh, in the next lecture. Um, Arab Isulis not only became the, pro- the greatest Ashkenazi sage, he was a wealthy guy. He supported a whole yeshiva in uh, Krakow. And even at a young age, he was viewed as a leader of the Jewish people. His relative in Italy was Mayor Katzenelenbogen. If anyone heard of the name Katzenelenbogen, some of the biggest Jews in Israel called Katzenelenbogen. That's a rabbinic family for 400 years in Poland, Lithuania. So when Mayor Kalabs did not live in Poland, he had moved to Italy. And he was involved in the first copyright argument of modern history. Because right after the printing press came up, there were who, if you put all of the effort to make a, print a book, so what happened was, he printed a Rambam, and then a Christian printer tried to undersell him and knock his out. And it became a big copyright discussion. So the Ramon, at a very young age, took his relative side and wrote ten responsa. 
and basically say that that the Rumer Katzenalberg had copyright laws. If you, it's, un, it's remarkable. There's, I think if you learn the history of copyright law. There's almost no copyright law in Western secular culture until maybe 150 years ago. But Jews who were very book oriented <laughs> and took books very seriously uh, by the middle of the 16th century start having responsa who owns the, who has copyright law and you see early copyright law and the Ramah was the one doing it well, the Ramah is most famous for his glasses on the Shulchan Aruch Rabbi Yosef Cairo who wrote the Shulchan Aruch in the middle of the 16th century and we'll discuss him in the next le- lecture we're going to talk about Sfat put out the Shulchan Aruch the Shulchan Aruch modified and updated the Torah it became the code of Jewish law. However, Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote the Shulchan Aruch according to Svartic custom. Now, by the middle of the 16th century, the world was evenly divided. 50% of the Jewish world was Svartic, 50% was Ashkenazic. Now, as mentioned a few lectures ago, in the next 200 years, it would change to almost 90% Ashkenazic and 10% Svartic. But at the time of 5050, Rabbi Yosef wrote the book using most of the Sfarik Pesachim. The Ramah, who was about to write another book, when the Shulchan Aruch came out, said as follows. I said, it's not worth to write another book. I'll just make glasses on the Shulchan Aruch. And in that fashion, and the, the, the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo and Ramah corresponded. They had a very good relationship. He wrote the Mapah. Mapah means a tablecloth. Rabbi Yosef Karl wrote what's called the Shulchan Aruch. The Korah Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, it really means the set table. Why is it called the set table? He gave you a platter. The Shulchan Aruch is on the platter. It's very easy. If you were a layman, Rabbi Yosef Karl's goal was to give you a set table. You open up a Shulchan Aruch, you read the Korah Jewish Law. Well, the Ramah put the tablecloth, the Mapah, for Ashkenazic Jewry. The remarkable thing is you see the unity between the two. It wasn't, even when Ramad disagreed, he didn't say, Rabbi Yosef Karo, you're wrong. He said, this is not what we do in our part of the world. Okay? Now today you hear, oh, these Sephardic Jews know nothing. Oh, these Ashkenazic Jews know nothing. The Ramah and Rabbi Yosef Karo didn't talk about, that way, about each other. What they said is, that's the way they're doing it, this is the way I'll do it. <laughs> okay, and he wrote the same, the book became merged. Okay, the Shulchan Aruch today, every Shulchan Aruch, Every Shulchan Aruch that's printed is printed with the, sh- with the Shulchan Aruch and the glasses of the Ramah. The Ramah was known for other works as well. He wrote Torah Sachatas, which was on the laws of Kashras. He wrote Torah Sa'oilah and Mechayon, which were philosophical tru- works. His Chuvas, his responsa, became famous, and he had many other works as well. The Ramah dies in 1572 on his Matseva, on his tombstone that wrote, from Moshe to Moshe, there is no one as great as Moshe. From Moses ben Maimon, from Maimonides to Moshe Isolus, to the Ramah, there was no one as great as Moshe. His grave became a pilgrimage site. Every year, on Lagba Omer, it's coming this week, every year on Lagba Omer, Polish Jews by the thousands would go to his grave. I was fortunate, I went um, 15 years ago with Yeshiva to Poland, and you can still go to his grave in his original synagogue, 
was one of the only synagogues that were left standing after Nazis in Krakow. In fact, Rabbi Flax, for those who remember Rabbi Avram Flax, he was the rabbi of the Ramah synagogue. Although today the synagogue is unfortunately, you know, there's very few people who daven there. But he davened every day. He was the rabbi of the Ramah synagogue. He told me he never sat in the Ramah seat. <laughs> he was scared to sit in the Ramah seat. Can you imagine? He could have sat in the same seat where the Ramah was the rabbi and said, if you go to that cemetery, you know, if you go to the, to the cemetery, because in, in Krakow, if you look at where the Ramah synagogue, the cemetery is behind the shoal. So if you go to the cemetery, there's great scholars buried there, the Tosus Yomtev, the Bach, the Ramah. I mean, you just look at that cemetery, the names are mind-boggling. But it's all there. That's one of the things that the Nazis left standing. Another great sage that people should know about, certainly a Talmudic scholar must know, is the Marsha. Okay? Is Rabbi Shmuel Eliezer Edels, who lived between 1555 and 1631. He was in a generation of great, great scholars in Poland. Right? Great scholars. The Bach, who is the foremost later scholar on the tour, Rabbi Yol Circus, was at that generation. The Mermer Melublin, who, if you learn Teisvis, is the primary, one of the two primary, the other is the Marsha, commentators on Teisvis. There are two great commentators. It's Marsha, we're talking about now, and Mermer of Lublin. Rav Mordechai Yafa, who is Lavush, but Marsha stood out. Rav Marsha is called Rav Shmuel Edels. His last name was not Edels. His last name was unknown because he was raised by a family who he married into the daughter. And his Edel was the name of his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law was called Edel. And they gave him that name. Why did he take the name Edel? Because not only was she the mother who raised him, and she became his mother-in-law. And there's a very long story how this happened. It's a remarkable story, way beyond our time frame. But she supported the Marsha's yeshiva for 24 years. Consequently, he became known after his mother-in-law's name. Okay, his father-in-law was, was, was a great scholar, Moshe Ashkenazi, who wrote Zichron Moshe. The Marsha became fa- famous for his Chedushe Marsha. Chedushim, every, every Talmudic student will say Chedushim. Chedushim means novel thoughts. Right? A novel interpretation. Now, it's no big deal to be novel if you don't make sense. Anyone can make anything, anyone can make up gibberish. Okay? But to be novel and make sense in the world of Talmud is the greatest hallmark. Right? People, the Soloveitchik family is famous not because they knew a lot, a lot of people who know a lot. The Salvations were famous because they had novel thoughts in the Talmud. They were able to back them up by proof. Okay, the Marsha had Chidushim both on the Talmud and in particularly on Tosfus, which every higher level student who studies Tosfus learns the Marsha on Tosfus and on the Agarata. The Marsha went into the Agarata, which are the ethical stories of the Talmud, and explained them. The, after the Marami Prague, the second most famous source on the Agadic portions, on the ethical, moral stories of Talmud, is the Marsha. Okay. Um, he was also known for his chesed, for his acts of kind deeds. It, his house, actually, on the door of his house, he had the verse from Eov, from Job, that it said, and it said about Eov, his house was always open for the needy, 
and he's and it said so no stranger shall stay overnight outside my door is open is open for every guest okay and here you see a hallmark of great leaders it wasn't just that they were intellectually brilliant it's that they were Baal Chesed you talk about Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik I just mentioned Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik who is the greatest Lithuanian sage in the early 20th century it was known that if anyone wanted to give away a child he left it on his door he, 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 people would sleep every beggar in Brisk which is a town of thousands of Jews would sleep in his house his house was in, it was a, people would come in and out with the Torah greatness came an appreciation for Chesed there was also a Mordechai Yafa called the Levush if you look at the codes of law whoever you want to look at one of the most quoted Svarim in Jewish law is the Levush Levush lived from 1330 to 1612. He was a student of the Ramah and of the Ramah's good friend, relative through marriage, and adversary in Jewish law, Reb Shlomo Luria, the Marshal. He was a student of both. Uh, at first, he be, took over the Maral Prague's uh, position in, uh, uh, well, actually, before Prague, um, uh, he was a Vershiva Prague, then he became the rabbi of Grodno in northern Poland. Grodno, Poland, and then became back to Prague as the rabbi. He ultimately became the head of the Council of the Four Lands. He was not only a religious head, he was the political head of Polish Jewry. Um, in fact, two days before his death, his last written words were to the head of the Council of the Four Lands, where he wrote, I am sick in bed, may you be spared. Facing the judgment of the King of Kings, I signed with a weak hand, Mordechai called Yaffa. His footwork called the Levush, or Levushim, was taken out of the verse in Esther that Mordechai went out with all kinds of clothes. Now there's a custom, which is an early custom that's brought down in early Sephardim, like the Sefer Hasidim, that a person should make a work, the title of his work, should be related to his name. Well, Mordechai was his name, so he took the name Levush from all of the clothes of Mordechai. If you look at the book of Esther, it says Mordechai wore all kinds of clothes of glory. So he called the book Levush. Why did he write this book? He wrote this book because he starts to write the book and he thinks to himself, you know, the code of Jewish law, he wasn't thinking about the Shulchan Aruch, too difficult for many people. I'm going to make it easier. I'll make it in a simple digest. And... I'll make all of the explanations with it. So I'll have the explanations and the code at once. Well, as he starts writing this book, lo and behold, comes out the Shulchan Arach. <laughs> as he's writing the book, the Shulchan Arach gets printed and disseminated. He's a very young man, by the way, when he's writing. He's a child prodigy. Starts writing the book, and the Shulchan Arach comes out. Well, he said the Shulchan Arach is still only going to cater to the Sephardic world, it won't care to the Ashkenazic world. Well, a couple of years later, as he's progressing his book, his own Rebbe, the Ramal comes out with the glasses. Now, you know, this is before the internet and Twitter and, 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 and email and, and, and cell phones, you know, communication. If you started writing your work, you didn't get advanced notice that someone else was writing your work. So, but he still felt that his own work would be, even though, it, even though the Ramal's work went to the Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi the Ramal was shorter in sources, he's given more sources. Although the Levush is and was heavily quoted, of course, 
Shulchan Aruch with the Ramah became the work of the Jewish people. So it didn't become the work, but it's quoted by all. It's quoted by all of the later commentaries as an authoritative work and as a compare and contrast of what the Levush says compared to the Shulchan Aruch and Ramah. What was the Council of Four Lands? It was unheard of. It was unheard of pretty much until, um, you know, from the time of the Exarch in Babylonia, who we discussed in the 10th century, all the way till our own time, until the State of Israel. There was no such autonomy in the Jewish people. The Council of Four Lands was, was founded in 1580. At the time, it encompassed all of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Bielorussia, White Russia, Ukraine, and it was broken up into four primary sections. Greater Poland, which was Cilicia, which was the western part of Poland. Little Poland, which was Krakow's area. Polish Russia, which included Podolia and Galicia. And the Volandia area, which was where Kremenitz and Ostrog and other cities were. At other times, it was called the Council of Three Lands or the Council of Five Lands. It was all the same thing. This council was given autonomy by the Polish government in this golden age of Polish Jewry to adjudicate all judicial, religious, and charitable institutions to manage them in Poland. It was called the Kahal, or the Kahal Kedisha, the, the community. Okay, And there were elders from these lands who did it, and they were in complete control of it. And all the elders that were appointed were Torah scholars. So Poland became a land of Torah. <laughs> It was run by Torah. It was led by Torah. Now, at the time, if you understand what Poland was, the average kid went to work at 12 years old. The Torah scholars were the geniuses of the time. Okay? They were the geniuses of the time. Um, But the average kid was not nearly as learned. However, they were in an area, if you were living in Poland, you were surrounded by Judaism, which we'll discuss in a minute or two. And this was a very serious thing. So in the 18th century, the, a, they had several famous cases. One of them, which is a, was a result of the Shatai Tzvi debacle, was a great fight amongst Rabbi Yonis and Ayabshitz, and Yaakov Emden, which we'll discuss in the next lecture. In 1764, the Polish Diet closed the um, VAD, and the reason they did it is because they felt they weren't collecting taxes efficiently. Okay? Um, ultimately, Poland would be partitioned shortly after. It would not exist as a country um, for a long period of time. It would be split between hung- Hungary and Russia and Germany and the Prussia. Uh, Poland was partitioned to many different parts, and which is why parts of Poland, if you ever heard of Galicia, you know, Galiciana, you know what Galicia was? Galicia was the part of Poland that got stuck with Hungary. So there was Hungarian influence in Galicia. So, I remember, you know, the funny thing is when I, when, I, when I went out with my wife, so my wife, her grandfather was, was a prominent Lithuanian rabbi, Lithuanian-born rabbi in Brooklyn for 60 years. So it's very, her, on her father's side, she's very Lithuanian and Polish. But on her mother's side, they were very Hungarian. Very Hungarian. <laughs> um, and my four grandparents were all Polish. So, you know, like my first or second date, you know, she was talking about her background. So I said, you know, my buddy, my grandmother, I say like this. And so they said, in Poland was the best. Then you were Galicia. And then the worst was Hungary. 
And she answered, her grandma said the opposite. Hungary was the best. <laughs> then it was Galicia. And then it was Poland. <laughs> right? So the very you're looking from. But Galicia was in the middle of, became, it's still, it's what today is Poland, but it had a heavily uh, Hungarian influence. Interesting, my Bobby always said that Lithuania was the smartest. Lithuania would become the land of the brilliant, because that's where, you know, the, high, the best issues will ultimately end up in the 18th and 19th century. In this golden age of, of Polish Jewry, not only did they have lots of immigration from the dangerous um, parts of Germany and France who were, which were not friendly to Jews, they also had a lot of immigration of Sephardic Jews from Spain who ran out of Spain, of Italian Jews who were a mix of Sephardic and Ashkenazi moved to Poland. And Poland also had natural growth. And by 1650, by 1650, there were 500,000 Jews in Poland, which meant that 30%, 30% of world Jewry was living in Poland by 1650. That wasn't even when it had its greatest population. By 1650, Poland had one, almost one-third of the entire Jewry of the world. It was by far the greatest Jewish population in the world by 1650. How did these Jews settle in Poland? Well, the Jews were even though they were living in Poland, they gravitated to the towns and to the larger cities. Warsaw, by the, when, at the, when the Holocaust started, was over a third Jewish. Krakow, a third Jewish. Lublin, these cities were heavily Jewish. And they also lived in towns. But they didn't live with the Poles in towns, they lived in shtetls. A shtetl was a Jewish town where the population was overwhelmingly Jewish. Okay, there are shtetls in America, by the way. You can go to Lakewood. You can go to parts in Monroe County in New York. You can see a shtetl. Okay, it may be a little bit different because they speak English. But a shtetl was completely or vastly majority Jewish. Okay. Now, we think of a shtetl like a you know, fiddler on the roof. This poor village, you know. You know. But in the golden age of Polish Jewry, they are actually quite wealthy. The Jews were merchants. They were thousands of these shtetls, and they spoke Yiddish. Yiddish was the language of the land. Yiddish, as I mentioned a few lectures ago, when we talked about the Crusades, was when the German Jews left Germany, they took their German language, their Hebraicized German language, and Yiddish also, because it was in Poland, got a little Slavic flavor to it as well. And it became the language of the Jews. And they built a thoroughly Jewish environment. As I start with that quote from Rebel Wine, Nowhere else did the Jew in exile become as openly Jewish and rise so high above the surrounding non-Jewish milieu, right? You think of Polish Jews, you think of Hasidim. You think of Jews who spoke Yiddish. Jews who were unabashedly Jewish. I remember my grandparents who were Polish Jews. They, my, my, actually, my great-uncle told me that the, the greatest, the most derogatory statement, the, you know, the greatest insult in Poland was to be called a guy. Goyish! If something was Goyish in Poland, it was off limits. I my great my, my great uncle told me that you know if something that the guy did you just didn't do. Rav Shach, who was the leader of Israeli Jewry in the twentieth century, said when a Jew would be called a Jid later on, a Jid, which means Jew swine by 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 a Russian or a Pole, Jew swine, they took it as an act of pride. They were unabashedly Jewish. Now. The Enlightenment and all of that 
uncomfortability that went along with tr- being blocked from social advancement, which Jews ultimately would be in later periods of, of Polish and Russian history, and being, if you're a proud Jew, then you can't be a proud university professor, and the consequences of being blocked from many fields like medicine and law and every and advanced study, how that and, and social mobility, that will be a different world. That's for a later period of time, which we will discuss. That will change the dynamic of not only Poland, Russia, Lithuania, all of these countries, and we see that um, to our day of what happened because of that. The Jews did well, but working with Polish and Ukrainian. Um, Christians has downsides. First of all, you know, I mentioned that the, the church was always coming against. Well, over time, you know, I think, you know, you look at Egypt today. I mean, just this week they, they had a massacre of cops. It's unbelievable, you know, how it's like not reported in the newspaper. It's, it's unbelievable. If you just look, they, 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 they kill Christians on the streets of Cairo. And it's unreported. If, they, if Jews would kill Muslims or Christians in the streets of Jerusalem, you know they'd be the first front page of the New York Times. It doesn't touch the pages of the New York Times because they, it's not news, unfortunately. Um, well, think of, you know, you hear of Al-Qaeda is giving messaging and messaging. Over the centuries, it's going to start building up. Okay, and you talk about on university campuses, all these pro-Palestinian things. We should not poo-poo these things. These are very, very dangerous. Okay, Joseph Goebbels was the person who said, you repeat a th- lie a thousand times, and it becomes true. When the Muslims deny the Jewish connection to Jerusalem, Okay, when you have neo-Nazi sites saying the Jews come from Khazars, you know all of these things. You know we may laugh at it today, but you let it propagate. You know you have Nazi denial of Holocaust. You have people denying the Holocaust. You have people, you have people denying the Holocaust twenty years after it occurred. Okay, these are dangerous phenomena. Well, the Christian Church and the Catholic Church over hundreds of years. You imagine going to the sermons. You know, Jeremiah writes, getting up there and saying, you, those Jews, they rule the economy, they rule the this, and you sit there and you listen to it, it could affect your mind. Something to think about. Um, hey, you, you hey, listen to the Catholic Church saying this over and over and over and over and over and over and over. What's going to be with everyone coming there every, every Saturday? The Jews have horns. The Jews killed Christ. The Jews... You know, use our blood for their matzah. The Jews are usurers who steal our money and steal our things, and that's how they spoke. Okay, the Jews are Satan, and they're Satan's children. Jay White, his mother, told me this is unbelievable that she she grew up in a part, I think, of Minnesota, which was Polish Catholic, and she remembers she went to public school, and she was in the locker room, and she saw these Catholic girls, Polish Catholic, looking at her. And then looking, and she said, "What? This is the 19. I don't. I don't want to guess how old his mother is. 1970s, whatever, whatever it is, 1970s." And they say, "They said to her, where are your horns?'" They, these were. She said, "What are you talking about?" She said, "They're Polish. This is in the United States of America, Minnesota, in a Polish Catholic church in 1970. They thought they had horns." Okay? I mean, that's what happens when people could believe these things. So that's one thing going against them. The other thing is that the Jews were the, the middle class between the um, nobility and the local folk and the serfs. The vast majority of Poland was serfs. The Jews were that middle ground between the two. 
Okay? Um, and when the Ukrainians who were subjugated by the Poles, who were, the Poland ruled over Ukraine, and the Ukrainians were Eastern Orthodox, the Poles were Roman Catholic, and the Jews were the people they dealt with on a day-to-day basis. And then when the Ukrainian nationalist movement starts to creep up in the 17th century, in their desire to avenge their Polish um, overlords, they took it out on Jews. In 1635, there was the first uh, revolt of the Ukrainians against the Poles. Um, this revolt was crushed. But in 1648, a 50-year-old man named Bogdan Khalmanicki would take over Khalmanitsky from the Russian way, the Lithuanian Khalmanicki. Bogdan Khalmanitsky or Khalmanicki would take over this group of Cossacks. And he would revolt against the Poles. But in his revolt against the Poles, and he killed Roman Catholic priests and nuns, he specifically hunted down the Jews. He went for genocide against the Jews. This would be the Tach Vitat pogroms. And if a Jew doesn't never heard of the Tach Vitat pogroms, it means we're this, we have, I mean, it was part of a Jew's blood. The Tach Vitat pogroms was genocide of the Jewish people. Tach Vitat means the years 48, 49, 1648, 48, 1649. Tach, the year Tach Vitat was genocide against the Jews. They hunted... It was like the Nazis. It wasn't like they, if the Jews were in their way, they killed them. They hunted down Jews with swords and butchered them and killed them in any way possible. In Poland alone, this is before guns, they killed over 100,000 Jews and many historians, Martin Gilbert from Oxford, contend they killed up to a half a million Jews in between 1648 to 1656. That was a tremendous percent of the population. Right? Up to 40-50% of the general population of that area was murdered in a matter of years in cold blood. They weren't gassed, they weren't shot dead. That means they could take swords and slice them and kill them. Let an example. In the city of Nemirov, it was a guarded city and it was able to withstand Kalmanitsky's original attack. Okay, so they went back. This is actually one of the tragic stories. The, the Shach wrote an ode to this. They dressed up as Polish soldiers because they had been, and the city, it was a couple of days later, thought the Poles were coming. They had advanced. And when they got into the city, they took off their Polish garb and literally slaughtered the whole city. Women, children, 10,000 people were killed in that city. The whole city was slaughtered. They took the Sifrei Torah and the Cossacks made boots from the Sifrei Torah. Look at source number three. This is Yevon Mitsuo, which was a memory book of the the, the Takvata pogroms. Some of them, Jews had their skins flayed off them, and their flesh was flung to the dogs. The hands and feet of others were cut off, and their bodies were flung onto the roadway, where carts ran over them, and they were trodden underfoot by horse. And many were buried alive. Children were slaughtered at their mothers' bosoms, and many children were torn apart like fish. They ripped up the bellies of pregnant women, 
took out the unborn children and flung them in their faces. They tore open the bellies of some of them and placed a living cat within the belly and left them alive thus, first cutting off their hands so they should not be able to take the living cat out of the belly. And there was never a natural death in the world that they not inflict upon them. Source number four. This is Shapsi Cohen, who is the head of Lithuanian Jewry. This is in his Megillus Ofo, which is an account of Chalmaniki's massacres. He was a contemporary. He was alive and well when this happened. On the same day, 1,500 people were killed in the city of Human in Russia on the Sabbath. The nobles, Cossacks with them, who the wicked mob had again made an alliance, chased all the Jews from the city into the fields and vineyards where the villains surround them in circle, stripped them to their skin, sounds like the Nazis, and ordered them to lie on the ground. The villains spoke to the Jews with friendly and consoling words. Why do you want to be killed, strangled and slaughtered like an offering to your God who poured out his anger upon you without mercy? Would it not be safe for you, for you to worship our gods, our images and crosses, and we would form one people which we would unite, unite together? But the holy and faithful people who so often allow themselves to be murdered for the sake of their Lord, of the Lord, raised their voices together in the Almighty in heaven and cried, Shema Yisrael, hear Israel, Shema Yisrael, we've been murdered for thy sake so often already, O Lord, our God, let's remain faithful to thee after they recited the confession, they said, Vidoi, and we are guilty and let's recognize divine judgment. Now the villains turned upon them and there is not one of them who did not fall victim. When you talked about Tach Vitat in Eastern Europe, any Jew has a collective memory. It, it brought shudders to Jews. If you look at the next, the literature of any Jewish book, the next several hundred years till the Holocaust, Tach Vitat was the most traumatic experience for Jews. It was genocide. And it was genocide in a brutal fashion. What's unbelievable is that Chalmaniki, Chalmanitsky, however you want to say his name, whatever pronunciation you want to use, is a Ukrainian George Washington. He is the national, he was the person who freed Ukraine from Poland. And despite his vicious anti-Semitism, he was a national hero. If you go to Kiev today, you can see a big statue of Bogdan Chalmanitsky. This is how, in 1648, the golden age of Poland came to an end. And yes, Jews would be still have a certain degree till 1698 of, 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 of prosperity in Poland, but no longer would they feel that Poland was always secure. Okay? Now, a rapid growth in the Jewish population was recorded in the 18th century. By 1766, they had recovered their, their numbers and, in fact, increased. So a hundred years later, 110 years later, they were at 750,000 um, Jews. The, the Polish Jewish historian Dr. Rafał Mahler spoke up that 29% Jews lived in ethnically Polish areas, 44% in, in Lithuania and Belarusia, and 27% in Ukraine. Two-thirds of all Jews at that point lived in towns and the remainder of the countryside. At the time of Kalmanitsky, though, and this is you know, interesting, you had two of the greatest scholars, the two major commentaries on Shulchan Arach were alive during these Tachvatat. That was, first, was Rabbi David Halevi. Rabbi David Halevi is known for his classic work, the Taz. 
the Turei Zav, the Rose of Gold. He was born in Vladimir. Um, he was father was a wealthy Torah scholar, and he grew up in an atmosphere of Torah of wealth. That would be much different in his old age when he lived in poverty and after suffering great hard, hardships. He, his older brother was his role model. His name is Rabbi Yitzhak Halevi. Rabbi Yitzhak wrote two great books called Siach Yitzhak and Bris Halevi. They had a very close relationship. They quote each other consistently. There's all kinds of letters from one to another going back um, and forth. And he encouraged his brother. This is a case of one brother, the younger brother, the Taz, ultimately become greater, but it was under the tutelage of his older brother and under his encouragement that he became the great person he, he did. His older brother brought out the best in him. And that's how he became this great sage, the Trezov. He married one of the greatest scholars of the time's daughter, the Bach, the Biol Circus. The Bach is the foremost commentator on the tour. He married his daughter. And like the old custom, the old custom was that you stay the first few years in your father-in-law's house. Okay, this was actually not uncommon in many countries and in many areas till recent memory. Okay, and I think after, now with the depression, maybe with his recession, maybe it'll become more common again. But um, he grew up, he lived in his father's house. Eventually, he left and he became the rabbi of several um, cities. He's most famous for his commentary on um, Shulchan Aruch called the Turei Zav. The same year as his first commentary came out, a young scholar, and the Taz was considered the older sage of Poland, a young scholar, Shabsi Cohen, who we'll discuss next, wrote a book called The Shach, in which these two argue all over the place on what the Shulchan Aruch and practical applications. Now, you think if you're arguing, they wouldn't get along. They, this older scholar and young scholar became very close. They published the Shulchan Aruch together. And the Shulchan Aruch to our very day, every copy of Shulchan Aruch is called Shulchan Aruch with a Shach on one side and the Taz on the other. In particularly, um, um, it became popular in Orachim. In Orachim, the Shach that the Taz was put with the Magen of Ram, and the Orachim work became the common work to our day. Now, Orachim, everyone heard of the Mishnah Burah, the work of the Chavetz Chaim. That's a commentary on Orachim. Orachim is the laws of daily living. Orachim includes blessings, brachas, Sabbath, prayer, holidays, all of that. The Taz became the, with the Magadon, the foremost commentator on the Shulchan Aruch. He's quoted consistently. The Taz was alive and well at the time of the Cossacks. He, his own community was destroyed. Um, he, Ostrog, which is a huge Jewish community, was wiped out. He himself was lucky. He escaped. He eventually became um, a rabbi in Lvov, in Lemberg. Um, he saw his two children murdered also by, uh, by Polish uh, Cossacks as well a few years later. Uh, he is famous to our day because of his works. His works outlived him. His own brother said about him, David Halevi's name spread all over over all countries, and God helped his work to worldwide recognition and acceptance. His heart was pure and candid as the heavens. His words were divine in their clarity and lucidity, despite their mildest and pious presentation. The last person, and the, I also should mention that the Taz 
was one of the greatest sages to come against Shabtai Tzvi. Okay? In the next lecture, we will mention Shabtai Tzvi. The, one of the first people to come full force against Shabtai Tzvi was a Taz. Because right after this Kazakh Tachvatat, and very much because of it, Shabtai Tzvi would come to the world. But before we end, I just want to mention one other great sage who was a contemporary. His name was Shabsi Cohen, the Shach. The Shach was a genius of geniuses. His father was the Rav, the Avbezdin of Vilna. And he was a child prodigy. His father, at a young age, before his bar mitzvah, took him to learn by the Magine Shlomo, who was the Rav of Krakow, who was the grand, great-grandfather of the Pnei Yeshua. Um, and the Shach, by age 24, had written his first work, work the Shach. <laughs> he's a genius of geniuses. He married a Rabbi Binyamin Wolf Tauber, who was a son-in-law of the Marshal, and the grandson of the Raman, who was also an extraordinarily wealthy person. You can see consistently that the rabbinic class, that the scholarly class, mar- intermarried constantly. This, If you look at the Hasidic world today, the rabbinic class, the rabbis marry rabbis, the rabbis, lineage, yichos, would be very important in Poland. In fact, in general, shaduchin, looking into background, becomes a very big Polish... Are, are the parents healthy? Are they normal? Are they whatever? That's how, you know, you think of the Shidduch part. Well, especially if you want to see how Poland went already, they were very into marrying for genius. Geniuses marry geniuses, and they created even greater geniuses in the process. Um, Shapsikon, when he wrote his book on the Taz, you have to imagine he was much younger than the Taz, 50 years younger, and he wrote a book, and now he didn't write a book, he then wrote glasses on the Taz after he saw the Taz wrote. And he called his glasses the Kudasakasaf. In his modesty, the Taz is called Rose of Gold. He put um, points of silver <laughs> and he uh, on the Taz to show in his modesty the Taz was a Taz. But you know what? Even though the Shach was younger, even though the Taz was the eldest age, he argued when he felt something was true, he did not back down. And that's the thing about Torah. Torah is a search for truth. You know, you can respect, you, you, you appreciate, but when you deal with God's work, you deal with how you should live, you, you gotta stand your ground. You know, the, the Talmud says when you, when you learn Torah, you're, you're an enemy of your, of your Harusa. But afterwards you love him. Because ultimately it's a pursuit for truth. And yet the Tazashach got along great, but they argued vehemently about what the Torah said about certain details of it. Shach also recorded, um, uh, the, the, the events of the, the pogroms of the Megillah Ofer, which is called the Flying Scroll. He wrote Slichos on the 20th of Sivan, which is coming up, which is when a lot of the murders occurred. He wrote Responsa. He had a famous work called Takfa Cohen on one of the big, uh, hard parts of the beginning of Bamatziah. But he died at a very young age at 41. But nevertheless, in one of the darkest times of Jewish, showing Ashkenazic history, you had two of the greatest scholars. You know, their works are still read to our very day. These scholars would have ch- children who are scholars and students and students in Polish Jewry for the next 300, 400 years till the Nazis marched into Poland and Lithuania. The greatest yeshivas in the world, all the famous yeshivas, Mir, Panovich, all these yeshivas, um, tells they were all products of these early teachers that came out 
all of the famous works, the Chavetz Chaim, the Salavetrics, they're all students of students of these people. Next lecture will be on Kabbalah, Messianic fervor, and the debacle of Shabtai Tzvi. Thank you, good night.